<clears throat> okay, so um, days like today, it's really um, gratifying to know that God's word doesn't need my help. Um, so this, you, you may have never thought about this before, but every once in a while, um, the preacher doesn't feel good. And so like, uh, I'm feeling kind of sick today. I told, um, in the first service, I was feeling even worse. And I was like, told a couple of guys up front, like, just be ready. I may be tossing you my iPad and you're going to have to take over and I'm out of here. Like it's, um, that may happen. And, uh, and there was a close moment. There was like, you've experienced those, those like the waves of cold sweat or whatever, about 15 minutes in that hit. And I'll tell you, it was, um, uh, it's again, it's so encouraging when, um, I mean, me getting, <laughs> it's just, I actually don't remember like the second half of the sermon very well. And, and I, I remember, um, it's rare for me to be, um, to look up and be like so excited that I was out of time. Like it was like, whew, I made it. So, um, anyway, and, and the feedback I got from at least one person was you did a good job considering that you were sick. So <laughs> I would set my expectations low today, just, just based on that feedback. Um, all right, so um, it is a good, it is such a great reminder that, um, that we are frail um, and that there's more to life than just these biological machines that, um, that we are and that we have and um, that there is more to even than, to us than just that, um, that, that uh, though our bodies certainly matter and they're part of who we are for sure, um, that they don't tell the whole story and, uh, and in fact, even more importantly, that even all of who we are doesn't tell the whole story. There's something that transcends us. Um, and as we're going to see in this passage, our, our, to follow Christ means to glorify the Father, and he can exalt us if he wants to. Um, that's, that's where we are. And so, again, though I'm feeling a little bit better, you know how that stuff happens. It may hit me later, and so I may be throwing this at Evan or John or someone like that and be like, take it. So, um, uh, <laughs> Keeling. I give it to John Keeling. You've, you've got enough to do already. All right, so, um, so here we are in John 8, and, and just to catch up a little bit, we are, we are continuing to engage in this conversation between Jesus and the people in Israel. Um, many of these would have still been people left from the Feast of the Booths, um, and, and the religious leaders, and the teachers, and just the common folk. At this point, it seems like Jesus is probably in the women's court um, which, is, which is not the most inner, but one of the inner courts of the temple. So his audience at this point would have been almost, well, should have been exclusively Jewish um, while he's talking to right here because no one's allowed in the women's court except Jews typically, although the Roman uh, soldiers ignored that at times. But, but that, was the, that was the basic. Um, he, he is talking with the religious leaders and the crowds here, and there's very mixed responses. They've been talking about him before he showed up at the temple way back in John chapter 7, which seems like months ago because it was when we were going over it. Um, and, then, and then moving forward, they've continued to have this debate. Um, the people have very different perspectives on him. You have some who, everything from some who seem to be authentically now, if you'll remember, we're using the active verb faith because that's how it is in the Greek, they are now truly, honestly, faithing in him. They have, they have trusted in him in, in reality as a savior, as a Lord, as a Messiah. Um, some are just believing, like they, they've, been, they've been convinced that he is a rabbi, he's an important person, he has good things to say or something. Um, there are others who are, are still very confused, not sure what to believe, and others who are actively opposed, who are actually going toe-to-toe with him. And as has been in the case um, in the Christian church ever since these days, the ones who are speaking up 
are, of course, the ones who are opposed. And that is always the case. You've been to business meetings and churches throughout your life. And that's typically the way things work. And so, and so the people who are opposed, they are still talking. Others are, some are, men are still listening. The confrontation has escalated and will continue to escalate. Um, it's going to continue to do so. And, and it's not even going to die down when Jesus leaves the temple. It just won't involve him directly for a while. But um, these, some of his claims that he's the light of the world, the one who judges rightly, the fulfillment of the law, the only one who knows the Father, the one with the truth, this has begun, be, begun to become disconcerting to the Jewish leaders, to the teachers of the law. They feel like he's starting to make some claims that they are very much so not comfortable with. In the past, they were mad at him because he broke the law in their opinion, for example, by healing somebody on the Sabbath. That made him mad. Um, but, but those are some gray areas, and they know that. So now the debate is getting more, and you're going to see it escalate just in these few verses we're going to look at today. There's three levels at least of narrative going on as we are studying the book of John. We've talked about this a little bit before, but I want to go back over this. One is, we have this little mini biography of Jesus of Nazareth, that that's part of what the book of John is, that it's, it's a story of the life of a person, just like if you were to read a biography about Winston Churchill or or George Washington, or someone like that, if you were to read a biography. And so some of what you're experiencing in the book of John is just biographical information. This is stuff that happened to our main character, Jesus of Nazareth. But there's more to that than, the, than there's more to it in the book of John than just that, and that is that John tells us, and we'll get there when we get to the end of the book, John is going to tell us his thesis statement, which is that he has chosen stories from the life of this person, Jesus Christ, that he's chosen stories intentionally with the idea that he wants to convince us of certain things about this person. That this, in fact, is the Messiah. That this, in fact, is the Son of God. That in believing in him, you can have eternal life. And John wants to convince us of that. So rather than just say, start with the beginning of Jesus' story or telling about his parents and then building all the way across and then just telling random stories that seem interesting to us, like a biography usually is, he is intentionally picking the stories that are meant to show us certain things. And John 8 has certainly not been any different than that as we see the escalation of Jesus' claims. So through the beginning of the book of John until now, now John makes claims about Jesus in chapter 1. But Jesus himself is dropping these claims, these little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and the people, the, the teachers of the law are getting upset about it we didn't go over this verse last week, even though we touched on it, I read it, um, but there's a verse, in verse back in verse 43 that Jesus engages with them on this topic. What, why can't they understand him? We've joked about this, we've talked about this, that they seem unable to understand him. If he's clear, they don't get it. If he's, if he's intentionally a little bit mysterious, they don't get it. If he's, if he's factual, they don't get it. If he's poetic, they don't get it. No matter how he comes at it, they don't get it. So what is that? What is it about us as a race? Remember, we, sometimes we need to identify with the bad guy in the story too. What is it about us that we just keep not getting it? That, that we hear these stories sometimes. You, some, of, some of us have been in church for years and years, decades of our lives, and yet we're no more free than we were when we started. We're not, live, we're not following Christ any more sincerely than we were back then. We're, we're no more faithful in regards to the covenants that we're a part of than we were back then. Why is that? What is that? Well, it, he tells them in verse 43, why don't you understand what I say? And he answers, it's because you cannot bear to hear my words. 
We don't like to change. Although the Holy Spirit works change in us, we are active participants in that, and we don't like it. We're in denial. We don't think we need to change, or we don't think we should have to change, or we don't think that, that what we're being told is the right change. There's so many different perspectives to come at it, but the fundamental is we just can't bear to hear the truth sometimes. We can't bear to hear the truth about us. We see it in, in, in relationships between people all the time, right, that we run into this. So that's what Jesus is telling them. They don't understand. So we've already heard Jesus, and Jesus integrates the concepts of God's responsibility to draw us, that we cannot know him unless the Father draws us, and our responsibility to be convinced. And he takes those and puts them together, and here he's talking about our responsibility. Part of our responsibility is we've got to be willing to hear the truth. And that's something that they're not going to be willing to do. So he's laid out, over the last couple of chapters, he's laid out his argument for who he is without stating it unequivocally, but still stating it. So he has said this. They come back to him, and they see that it's escalating. They see that what he's saying is becoming more clear. So they say, um, and, and in an effort to engage seriously and soberly in the conversation, they say, isn't it true that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? This is, this is Facebook. This is where Facebook comes from right here. So if you start losing the debate, what you do is you call names. This is, this, we all know this rule. That's what you do, right? It, Hitler had not been born yet, so they said demon, right? Otherwise, they'd have said he was Hitler. Um, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, this is intriguing. There's a couple little teachable lessons here, but just so you know, in case you're, you weren't raised in church and don't remember some of these stories, um, the Samaritans um, were, they, there was an ethnic issue with the Samaritans. So in the past, other conquerors had brought in other races, other ethnic groups to, to the area of Samaria, and the Jews there had intermarried with them. But on top of that, so there was an ethnic uh, difference that was creating a problem. Some, this is a, racial, um, a racially bigoted statement, straight out, no doubt. And there was religious dissension between them. Um, they had each had committed crimes against each other, the Samaritans against the Jews, the Jews against the Samaritans. If you want to hear more about that, we talked about it in detail when we talked to John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, but but no, no side on this was innocent. Just like today, there are no innocent parties in the Middle East. Um, that's just how this works. There were no innocent parties. Everybody had wronged everybody else. That's how this works. Um, so what happens is, um, this has now become an insult equal to you have a demon and you're a Samaritan. Those two things are put together. Now, it is intriguing to me, Jesus was generally kind to Samaritans. Um, he, when his teaching, when he would puts them in a story, they, they play the role of the good guy in the story. Part of that is to drive this ethnic tension deep into the Jewish hearts so they have to deal with it. They have to deal with the fact that they have this racial or ethnic issue that they have in their own hearts that need to be dealt with. And that's why he uses them as the, worst, as the good guy in some of the worst examples. Generally, like I said, he's kind to them. They also say he's possessed of an evil spirit. Um, in other places, Jesus is going to have harsher words about this. But all he says here, um, Jesus, this, this little section to me feels very gentle from Jesus. That Jesus is sincerely going to try to tell them that they need to believe. So they have said, their argument has been, because remember he just said, your father is the devil. Their response to that is, well, you have a demon. 
So Jesus' response to their, I know you are, but what am I argument, is to actually respond. Jesus says, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. So this is significant that Jesus tells them, see, you aren't my judges. You don't judge me. You don't have the authority to do so. But there is a judge, and he will judge all of us. In fact, this next phrase, in my opinion, is Jesus warning them in regards to that judgment. In fact, truly, truly, remember when Jesus says that, that's a way of saying, listen, listen, what I'm about to say is important. Don't miss what I'm about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, which is on the other side of judgment. Understand that Jesus is, I think Jesus is warning them here. Listen, you no, no, you're judging me. You're dishonoring me. I get that. That's not how this actually works. I have a judge, and so do you. What you don't want is for him to dishonor you. What you don't want is for him to judge you and find you wanting. You don't want that to happen. You don't want to that type of death. You don't want to experience that. So keep my word, and you won't have to experience that death. Now, this is amazing. Jesus is being given the worst insults in a very public setting right here in the temple, incredibly rude and dishonoring, and Jesus' response to them is gentle. Not always the case. You get over Matthew 23, Jesus sometimes goes toe-to-toe with this, but Jesus is being very, very patient here. Now, I'm imagining the apostle Peter sitting here, and the apostle Peter has his sword half-drawn pretty much this entire conversation. He's ready to fight about this. That's, that's my opinion. I mean, he, we know what a hothead Peter can be. I think Peter's sitting there. He's listening to this. He's, he's irritated. They've now become so directly insulting, probably is what's going on. And that's Jesus' response, to trust himself in the one who judges, not in them. And I think it's this moment and moments like this in Jesus' life that inspires Peter to write this. In 1 Peter 2.23, Peter says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is the Christian position. In this passage, Peter is telling us we should act like this. That that when we're reviled, we don't have to revile back. That's just another word for insult. When we're dishonored or insulted, we don't have to fight back against that. We don't do that. He didn't. When he was persecuted, he didn't threaten. He entrusted himself to the one who judges rightly, and that's what we have to do. By the way, it is intriguing to me that in this passage, he says, I have not a demon. They say, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon, and he says, I don't have a demon. Do you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't fight back against this insult, Samaritan. I I think that's on purpose. Every single commentary noted this that I read. That Jesus, who came to save the world as a response to the way God so loved the world and who would purchase people from every tribe and nation for the Father, in whose kingdom there is no Jew, there is no Greek, does not even respond to the insult Samaritan. He doesn't give it the credit of responding to it. He does not deny being a Samaritan. Remember that back in John 4, we saw many Samaritans convert, become followers of Jesus Christ, accept that he was the Messiah. 
which these people in Jerusalem aren't doing. Not many of them. Instead, Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm not going to argue with that. In his heart, he is a Samaritan. In that, they are his people too. That's part of who he came to die for. That the ethnic tension that, that they faced then, that we face now, strikes me that Jesus Christ continues to be the only real solution for the issues that we face. That, that we would be able to say, I don't, I don't revile back. I don't have to fight back on these matters. I trust in the one who judges rightly. Um, you guys know um, Stephen Young, who's preached here a few times, an African-American pastor here in town of the Cross Church, and he and I try to get lunch every month or so. And just, It's just fantastic to get the chance to, to interact with a godly man um, who is in, in every way um, a peer of mine. He, he's a great preacher. I just love listening to him. He, he studies the word. He knows it. He just, he just loves this stuff. And so it's great to get that time with a brother and to realize, and we talked about this just last week, how, how we can sit and discuss and try to learn um, what runs through the minds of a white person and what runs through the minds of a black person in these moments that, that we don't, and when we engage with the press and, and, and because our relationship is transcended by something as, as tiny as ethnicity when it comes to our identity. We are both in Christ. And so it's, it's, a, it's a glorious experience of heaven to get to, to have those moments. Um, I, I like that Jesus models that for us in this, that we can learn from that. Um, okay, so you want, uh, Jesus has said over and over that his words and deeds are from the Father. He is worried about honoring the Father. That's his job. They are worried about dishonoring him. That's their job. God honors his own son. The son honors the father. God will judge all of this. Jesus doesn't work for these people he's meeting with. He doesn't work for this crowd. He's not employed by them. He works for the father. Their judgment could not mean less to him, which gives him the freedom to continue loving them and to have compassion for them because their judgment just doesn't make any difference. When we face that, when we face persecution, we get to just relax and know that in the end, we have a judge. Now, that doesn't take away our responsibility to follow Christ. It enhances it, right? It doesn't take it away. It makes it more difficult just remembering who our real judge is. There's such freedom in this. Listen to this next gentle, I think a calm, patient response. Like Jesus talking to a child throwing a fit in verse 52. Jesus, the Jews respond, now we know you have a demon, because Abraham died, as does the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? They're at the point now. They want to hear it. They want him to say it. They want him to own what he's claiming. So they start with this. We know you have a demon now, because he's claiming that, that so they're saying, listen, Abraham, people followed Abraham, and they died. People listened to Abraham's word, and they died. People listened to the prophets, and they died. You're saying that if we follow you, we don't see death. Now, obviously, part of this is what we've run into now every single chapter, is that Jesus is teaching a spiritual truth, and the people listening to him want to put it into physical terms. They just don't have the imagination for it. But honestly, part of this is, isn't this a rational response? This is one of those where I do identify with the teachers of the law. I mean, if I'd been sitting in a sermon somewhere and the guy teaching goes like, listen, listen, carefully, truly, truly, listen to what I'm about to say. This is really what matters. 
Here's what I tell you. Forget everything you've heard. Forget everything all the other religious leaders in the past have told you. Forget everything you've ever read or heard before. Here's the one thing that you need to know. If you'll do what I say, you can live forever. Would that worry you? I hope so. That should very much so. That's, that's, a, that's a meeting with the leadership board the next morning, right? Uh, we need to talk about what Chris said yesterday, right? That's not acceptable. And only if it's true is that acceptable. We would, do this, we would have the same response they do. Wait, wait, wait. What exactly are you claiming? What exactly point are you making here? Now, I, I, I love this. It's understandable that they say this. When he says, you'll never die, you will not see death, they quote it as, you will not taste death. It's interesting language. John, in John 6, remember when Jesus lost all his fans for a while? In John 6, 48, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Obviously, Jesus doesn't mean they're not literally going to physically die. He's referencing the followers of Abraham and Moses who originally died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So how do you verify a claim like this? So if a, if a guy gets up and gets up and says, hey, listen, forget everything you've learned, forget the religion you've been a part of, forget the holy writings, all that kind of stuff, all of that was actually pointing towards me. All of that was actually pointing towards me. I am where life is found, me. You should be very concerned that someone would claim that. It's a cult leader waiting to happen, right? So here's what you gotta do, which is exactly what Jesus in the last chapter told them. You're not going to get this until I am lifted up. Now, do you see why that's important? The claims that Jesus are making can only be confirmed by one thing. And that is, if he dies and doesn't stay dead. You need to believe that Jesus has the power over death you need to believe that Jesus has more power than Abraham or Moses or Isaac or any of these. He has the power over death itself. How could you possibly, how could he possibly show that? The study of what the crucifixion of Jesus Christ did is called the atonement, the study of the atonement. And there's lots of different theories. In my opinion, most of them turn out to have some, at least some truth in them. One of them is called Christ the victor. Now it's not all, it's not sufficient. It doesn't tell the whole story. But one of them is Christ the victor, which is the idea that Jesus conquered in his death and resurrection. And that is certainly part of what happened there. That's part of the proclamation here. Listen, you're not going to get that I have the authority to say this kind of stuff until I show you. Then, and by the way, that, implied, that also applied to the 12 who followed him. And that applied to his own half-brothers. They didn't get it until that happened. Well, that makes total sense, the claims he's making. So, um, Jesus answered them. So they throw a fit again. The prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. In other words, I'm not claiming it for myself. The Father glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. Two different Greek words used here that I'm not going to dig into, but they're, it's pretty cool. The, you, don't, you don't know him, but I know him. Like, I, I really actually know him. 
from the inside out is a, is a fascinating language. But if I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. Okay, I, I admit that's not very gentle. That's a little bit of a jab. Like everything else Jesus is saying here is pretty sweet, but that little line, like, yeah. I'd be a liar like you people. But anyway, it's, this is a, um, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Do you see what he's doing here? This is such a great engagement with this crowd. This is a Jewish crowd and they're saying, wait a minute, you're saying we've got to walk away from Abraham? You're saying we've got to walk away from Moses and follow you instead? You're saying we've got to walk away from the prophets and what they taught instead? And Jesus is telling them, oh no, not at all. That's not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is that if you knew Abraham, if you followed Abraham, you would be following me. Are you kidding? So this, this reminds me of the conversation I had with Ginger's, I guess technically step-grandfather, Hillard, years and years ago, who was a non-practicing Jew, um, he was a non-practicing anything but a Hillard worshiper for the most part. But sitting down with Hillard and going, um, so you've been around, you've been surrounded by really godly people who really have loved you well. What, what has shielded you from becoming a Christian so effectively? And he goes, well, I can't be a Christian. I'm a Jew. Now, again, only genetic Jew. He had never done anything even remotely Jewish. And I, and I said, Hillard, I'm I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that most of the early Christians were Jewish. I, I think you actually can be Jewish and be a Christian. Let's think. Um, well, I mean, there's Jesus. <laughs> he was Jewish, and I think he was a Christian. Like, and then I think, I think the authors of the entire Bible, like all of them, they were Jewish, and they... Like, what are you talking about? Most of them, not Mark, maybe. But, but there's... But like, um, this is a, like, how do you... How do you make that? Well, Jesus is making that same case. Like, no, no, listen. You following Abraham would mean you followed me. Are you kidding? Abraham waited his whole life for this day. He waited his whole life to get to see the fulfillment of the promise God gave him. Which promise, you ask? Look over in Genesis 22. Let's start in verse 17. I will surely bless you. This is God speaking to Abraham. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sands on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and your offspring shall all the nations, through your offspring, in your offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now listen, granted, the Jewish people have been powerful, have played powerful roles in the history of mankind. No doubt. The nation of Israel has been a key player in so many different aspects of the history of mankind. But it would be a stretch to say that the Jewish people, just through their Jewishness, have been a blessing to the whole world. Yes, in many ways they're responsible for monotheism becoming something that was practiced. People recognizing, no, there's a God above all the gods. But that's part of God speaking to Moses and God speaking to Abraham, right? God really gave that in so many ways. No, the way that I think if you called Abraham back and you said, Abraham, look at the world as it exists today. So you see all these Jewish people, all of these, all of these people of Israel, and, and there are, they're like the sands of the sea if you go back in time and look at all of them. But more significantly than that, Abraham, 
Abraham, one out of every three people alive in the world in 2018 at least claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a Jew. A man born in descendants of Abraham. See, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this promise. Because you've obeyed me, Abraham, I will bless the entire world. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. This was the great blessing through the Jewish people. All of it is significant. This is game-changing. This, this changes everything. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, came through this people. That is a blessing for everyone. Everyone gets to be free from sin and death because of this one man and the fact that he came and lived. How would Abraham feel to see that? I mean, dads, how do you feel the first time your kid scores a touchdown or, or makes straight A's or, or plays in the band or that pride you feel? Now magnify that times a bazillion to, for to go with what, with what Abraham must feel to the degree he understands this. Abraham rejoiced in the day that Jesus walked on the earth. If you really loved and followed Abraham, you people would be freaking out that I'm here teaching this stuff. You couldn't get enough of me. You want to follow Abraham? Good, keep following Abraham. Jesus is saying this, the path you're on is the right path if you will stay on it and continue to follow me. It is a good thing. Of course, that is not how they respond. Because remember, they can't bear to hear it. He's changing too much, too fast. They can't bear to hear it. So what's their response? Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Doesn't that sound intimate? Like Jesus has had a conversation with Abraham about this. Listen, last time Abraham and I talked, he couldn't wait for this day. He could, that's because he has. Even if you, whether you believe about the resurrection, whether Jesus has talked to Abraham after his death or not, Jesus walked on the earth, I believe, that that's what you're dealing with when Jesus, when, when, when Abraham runs out of his tent to go get these three strangers into his tent and to, and to come bless them and take care of them and have a long conversation with them about the blessings and the promises that God has given him and two go to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and one stays and the one who stays talks as though he is God himself. I think that's because it was God himself. I believe Jesus Christ was there that day in the tent with Abraham. Abraham has had a long conversation with Jesus Christ. Even on earth he has. And he's remembering back on that conversation saying, you have no idea how excited Abraham was to hear that through his family would come the fulfillment of God's plan for the entire world. He couldn't wait for this day. And their response is, the Jews said, you are not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. Abraham was 15 centuries ago. What are you claiming about yourself? Who are you saying that you are? You keep making these claims. You must have a demon. You've got to be crazy. So Jesus gives them what they're asking for. You're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus says, truly, truly. And here's again. He wants this clear. Listen. Stop talking and listen. Listen. I'll tell you, truly, truly, I say it to you. I'll tell you right here, before Abraham was, I am. Now, there's, there's been a lot of work done on the fact that Jesus says these words. It is staggering to me that there is still anyone left, and they are still out there, 
who claims that Jesus never claimed to be God, that nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus claim to be God. And that's because Jesus apparently does not say in English, I am God, which you wouldn't expect him to do because English didn't exist yet. But Jesus did not say, I am God. Here's what's wild. Even if in the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic, if Jesus had said, I am God, that would have been less significant. Remember, this is Roman times. There's a pantheon of gods. This is the Hellenistic era. There are Greek gods and Roman gods all over the place. They got statues every four feet. It's, it's a, there are gods everywhere. He just would have been claiming to be, oh, I'm Hercules or I'm Percy Jackson or I'm, I'm whatever, right? He's clearly a younger audience. First, first service, that joke just like sailed, like nothing. <laughs> of course, I was, I was sick, so maybe I don't know. But the, the, the uh, just claiming to be half God or I'm just one of the gods or I'm the son of Poseidon. I mean, what, you could be claiming almost anything to say that in that era. Jesus is being abundantly, absolutely, unquestioningly clear. And people get weirded out about the fact, so what, what language was Jesus speaking at this moment? Was he speaking Hebrew? Was he speaking Aramaic? Or was he speaking Greek? He's in the temple. It's possible he's speaking Hebrew. He probably, most of his life, spoke in Aramaic. That was the conversational language of the day. Isn't it wild to think, by the way, that 2,000 years ago, everyone spoke at least three languages, maybe four? And we think we're so much smarter, right? So, so Jesus is speaking this. Who knows what language that he used? John doesn't tell us. But John makes it a abundantly clear in the Greek what the point Jesus was making was. Before Abraham was, in the Greek, the next two words, I am. This is as clear as he can be for a Jewish audience. You're speaking to nothing but Jews and you claim that you are, that you say it that way, before Abraham was. And even to put it in a time thing, listen, before Abraham, you're saying, oh, where, where were you? You weren't here around 1500, uh, 1,500 years ago. Oh no, I was around long before that. Before Abraham was, I am. This is, this is a powerful claim and it gets exactly the result you think it would get. Um, the, in the Hebrew, Yahweh, I am. To this day, um, serious Hebrew, serious Jewish people don't say the word Yahweh. They don't want to accidentally take the Lord's name in vain. I don't, I don't have that same fear um, as, as a child. I'm not just a servant, but a child. I get to, I get to embrace that at a new level. But the, in fact, if you see it, if, if, if you listen to a practicing Jew like Ben Shapiro or something or read their writings, when they write the word Yahweh, they will put a dash in it. Understandable, they're taking very seriously the name of God. Um, I, I get that and even appreciate that for that concept. But uh, fortunately, we enter boldly. We speak our Father's name, um, and he forgives us when we do it foolishly. But listen to this. In Exodus 3, this is when Moses is speaking to God in the burning bush. By the way, it's kind of a cool little inspiration that we have that. Our, our tree right out there looks like it's on fire this morning, as I knew I was going to be referencing this. When you walk back out, you'll see it. There's a tree that's pretty awesome right there. So anyway, um, Exodus 3, 13 Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers have sent me, and they ask me, well, what's his name? What shall I say? See, they knew God's title. God is God's title. God is a title, not a name. God said to Moses, I am who I am. So he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. The angel of the Lord is who speaks through the burning bush. I also believe that this is Jesus Christ. This is God himself speaking. I am. This is his word. This is his language. This is God speaking, giving his name. I am. 
All through scripture, this matters. And when Jesus in this moment claims this, before Abraham was, I am, there is no doubt the point that John is making about Jesus' words. This is the point he's making. He is claiming to be Yahweh. He's claiming to be the great I am, the God of the Jews. Again, that, there are anyone, that there's anyone who still argues this means apparently they didn't read the next verse. Because the next verse is kind of strange if Jesus is not claiming to be God. By the way, let me just, let me just comment on um, the whole movement. When I searched I am, um, and I came up with all of the self-help psychobabble junk that's done in this, in this name, that I am this or I am that, or I, like that you're supposed to make these claims. Um, I mean, have fun with that. Uh, the denial's a real thing. We can't bear to hear something new. Um, but, but this idea, here, there was one, I think I have it, there was one that I saw that, that I liked. That's, there's a better way to understand it. If you want, you want an identity statement with the word I am, and it go with this, you are who I am, says you are. That's who you are. I am is the one who speaks the truth. He is the declarer of all things true, of all things value. So if you want to engage with an I am statement, this is a good one. Then you can study all the different things God says you are, all the identity that God speaks into you. It was all over the place. Anyway, I don't want to, the, the self-affirming statements, we get too carried away with those. But how about this? So how did his audience respond? Did they understand that he was claiming to be God? Did they get that? Well, look at how they responded. If, if he's just making some clever little cute statement, they have a really weird response because what they respond with is, so they picked up stones to throw at him. Now why in the temple would they start picking up stones to throw at Jesus unless he's claiming blasphemy here? Which he is unless he's God. He is claiming to be God. Not just any God, Yahweh, the God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God above whom, above whom you should have no other gods, the God uh, who proclaims that you should not even have any idols equal to him. That's what he's claiming. That's significant that he's claiming this to the Jewish crowd. So of course they respond with, they don't know that he is God. So the only correct response to someone who claims to be Yahweh in the women's court, in the temple, is to stone them to death. That's the only right thing to do. According to Moses' law, you can't just, you can't just make that kind of claim. Unless it's true, it is punishable by death in the Jewish world. So Jesus' response, by the way, is just to hide himself. He just vanishes into the crowd. And by the way, this helps us. The rejuification of Jesus helps with this, understanding Jesus in a Jewish context. You go, how would he do that? I mean, he's an important person. All these people have been listening to him. And all understand that when you went into the temple, you had to change clothes and put on a brand new white garment that was identical to everybody else's brand new white garment. Jewish men have very strict instructions about things like their beard. So you can imagine that actually it would not be hard at all to just, some people say this is a miracle, and maybe it is, but some say it obviously doesn't have to be. Jesus just kind of steps out of the public eye for a second, and the minute he does, he vanishes into a mass of humanity who all look identical to one another. They all look the same, they're all dressed the same, and he just walks away. As John would say, it's not his time. When a time comes, he'll take care of this. But so he just leaves, and he goes out of the temple. But I want you to end our thought this week in preparation for Advent, which starts next week. <laughs> we'll be doing things a little differently. Um, uh, we'll be doing more engagement, more, um, more for us to engage in in different ways during Advent, um, more of what we might call liturgy or historical engagement or even cross-cultural engagement with, with what it is to celebrate 
um, as we prepare our hearts for, for, to celebrate Christ's coming, um, which would not have happened in December, but that's when we celebrate it. And so that's going to be part of it. The sermons will be shorter. You're welcome. And, the, um, and other experiences and other parts of this will be um, a lot of what we're doing. And so it should be really cool. Um, but we are going to stick with John. And so we're going to teach through John 9 and into John 10 as our Advent series. So you can look ahead at John 9, it's particular, and you can probably get the catch. When you look back at John 7, into John 8, and into John 9, what our themes are kind of going to be. Um, but one of the things I, I want to leave you with is this. So Jesus has just made the most important proclamation since Moses. He has just proclaimed himself to be the great I am. The people try to kill him. He disappears into the crowd, gets to the temple entrance, one of the temple entrances, with his disciples trailing along behind him. And he walks out of the temple entrance under these conditions. And here's where it starts. John 9, 1. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Here's what I love. I love that in one moment we are engaging with the cosmic, transcendent creator of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in the very next moment, we are dealing with someone who is stopped to be bothered by a crippled man by the temple gate. This is our engagement. This is part of our spiritual narrative. The first narrative is the life of Jesus. And the second narrative is how John is presenting this to us so we can believe. And the third narrative is the Holy Spirit engaging with you through his word. Do we have, do we worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Absolutely. Does he care enough to stop and engage with us in that? Apparently. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus that we're going to get into. There's a lot to learn in John 9, so I hope you'll stay and continue to come and be engaged with that. Um, so as you, that, that might even be worthwhile for you to kind of to focus some energy on that phrase. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and what that would mean for us. What that would mean for us. Pray with me, please. Father, I thank you for getting us through um, today, and I thank you that as you remind us once again that we are frail. Um, Lord, that, that this is not our home and that you have... Rest, restored, resurrected bodies in store for us someday that, that I assume will not get sick and they don't get tired and they don't get hungry and they don't whatever. And Lord, at the same time as we engage with the truth of who you are and who you say we are, that that begins to impact everything else. God, I thank you for the power of your word which transcends anything that we could say about it. I thank you that John wrote these things down to teach us. And I thank you that your spirit inspired him and that very same spirit continues to illuminate your word to us, continues to engage with your word in our hearts. Thank you, Father, for the good gift of your word, your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that our lives will be changed. We will be impacted in every way. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.